to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome. Brendan here. Not Simon anymore. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 183, April the 2nd, 2021. Well, we're recording a little bit later than we usually record, aren't we, Mark? We won't tell our listeners, our subscribers when we do record. It's a bit of a secret. It does vary a bit, bit of the time, doesn't it, when we record, but we are a tad, tad later. Had, things were running a little bit behind at work today, Mark, so I didn't leave till till later. And then there was a big traffic jam, and instead of taking 15 minutes to get home from work, which a lot of people will be pulling their hair out saying, gee, I wish I only had to travel 15 minutes to get home, it probably took me 45 minutes, Mark. It was, and I didn't quite work out what was happening. There was just bumper to bumper near the bridge that I cross over, and by the time I sort of got to where the whatever event was happening, I just saw four police cars with various police people standing around chatting to each other. And that was it. There was no cars that would have gone over an embankment or people in in handcuffs or or with foots on their throat or, you know, anything like that. So who knows what was happening there, Mark. So I was a little bit late. And you need to unmute yourself now, Mark, and get ready to say hello to our listeners. Vetgurus.com is the place to go to. And don't forget to think about going onto our Patreon site and throwing us a bone, which means giving us $5 or $1 or 50 cents or any sort of monetary amount that you can think of. Loose change would be good to help support the podcast. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. Now, th- now that um, I've managed to switch the microphone on, um, <laughs> it's felt a bit Zoomy, like, you know, in those Zoom meetings when you start to have, you know, say the most profound thing known to humanity um, and everyone just points at you and goes, you, you, your microphone's not on. That's how I yes. felt, Brendan. Or you have somebody walk in in the background dressed <laughs> inappropriately or not dressed at all um, and they make it to YouTube uh, <laughs> with millions of hits, yes. So how's your week been, Mark? It's been a good week, Brendan. Um, I did go down to um, visit my folks in Sydney. As you know, they're, they're, um, they haven't been real well lately and um, so it was good to catch up with them and just sort a few things out for them. Um, the drive to Sydney was crikey's didn't take much longer than your drive home. Uh, we had a really good run to Sydney Excellent. down the freeway. And there's a new new there's some new traffic arrangements in Sydney which allow us to miss a lot of the suburban network and so um, it isn't it is not a horrendous drive and it's always good to uh, be able to get out of Sydney once again relatively quickly so Good. Do you do you have those transit lanes in the freeways like where if there's more than d- during peak hour in Melbourne here and on a few of our main freeways, there's a transit lane where you can, if you have more than one passenger or you have, sorry, more than two people in the car 
or more than one person, sorry, <laughs> then you can go in the transit lane, which is the- You're going to get booked of, for sure because you don't know how many people are supposed to be in. Yes, <laughs> they have right. them. I think they have them in uh, most major cities. They definitely have them in Sydney. We don't have them in Newcastle. Um, we don't. It, it falls down a bit near the end when they all sort of merge, doesn't it? And then, you know, you, then all the other people who weren't in the transit lane get really pissed off and they won't let you in. And I feel really guilty, like, if you're in one of those lanes, if you're, if you're, if you're in a car by yourself and you're not in one of those lanes and you've got to turn left, you've got to sneak in there for a little bit to, you know, to be able to get off the, the uh, freeway. Well, our transit lanes are in the right-hand side. That's how we solve that down here. Uh, don't start me on Victorian traffic. I'll have to start talking about trams. <laughs> yes, we will. But not today, not tonight, not this evening, not this morning, Mark. I think we're going to jump into an email, and we had an email from a long-term listener, subscriber, Kelly, Mark, and it's regarding a product that – is no longer in use, so she's wanting to know what we recommend. And her email goes something like this, with Covinin withdrawn worldwide, and I didn't realise this, Mark, we are looking at using HCG, so human chorionic gonadotrophin, in entire female ferrets in estrus, which will bring them out of estrus. I remember in one of your podcasts you mentioned you had HCG. I'm looking at doses and where to source it. Thanks for any help, smiley face. Thanks, Kelly. Um, so, Mark, what's the answer? The answer is, um, well, all I can tell you, we get uh, Corallon, the the uh, commercial trade name here in Australia for uh, HCG, just from our routine supplier. I'm so sure that most of the veterinary wholesalers will provide you with Corallon. It comes in a five-pack with its own diluent, um, each of the vials that is uh, that has the HCG in it is, um, you know, freeze dried. Um, when you use it, you mix the um, the diluent into the powder, um, and um, it gives you. A th- from memory, it's um, fifteen hundred international units per mil, but um, I could be mistaken about the concentration. But it's um, that's a uh, uh, um, been exceptionally useful for us to use um, and I think you're doing the same thing with uh, the ferrets to take them out of season um, we, we regularly are desexing those female ferrets once we have them off season and we're confident their PCV is at an adequate level um, well a lot of the ferrets we're also using um, uh, um, the desloralin implants uh, um, to gain longer-term control over them and have some effect on their the likelihood of getting adrenal disease. So, But um, short answer to the question, get it from your supplier and use it. Yes, and I think we have similar protocols for it, don't we, Mark? Um, you in- intramuscular injection and you repeat that IM injection in 10 to 14 days if the that ferret has not started to show signs of coming out of season. So the vulva usually starts to decrease in size. Um, is that the what the way you use it, Mark? Precisely the same. 
Um, the, the I reckon about more than half the ferrets are noticeably the the vulva is noticeably smaller by the time we look at them ten to fourteen days after. But those that still have a very prominent vulva get a second dose at that time, and it's good and safe and very effective. So there you go, Kelly. And if you want the exact dose rate, um, it varies a little bit. Um, we can send you a an email about that. In fact, Mark will be doing that shortly. Won't you, Mark? It's my homework. You'll be replying to Kelly. And thank you for the question. And we welcome questions and we welcome people to say hello. And in fact, anybody who does say hello, um, when we open the, the floodgates, Mark, for our 200th episode competition, anybody who sends us an email will be automatically entered into that competition. And unfortunately, Kelly, you don't qualify for that because we haven't declared the competition open yet <laughs> i think we i think we're going to do that we'll probably plan on doing that from episode 190 from 190 for that 10 episodes so so yes but thanks kelly for your email and yes that's precisely what i use and it's certainly um, readily available from the wholesalers here in victoria so i'm sure she'll be able to get that and used hcg and everybody will be happy and the ferrets will be Happy as well, Mark. So we don't have any reviews this week, and that's because we're chock-a-block full of news, Mark. We have so many news stories. Our our research team has been out of control providing us with uh, news items to discuss, Brendan. So many so that you're insisting that we just power through them. Yes, we're going to. Try and rip over, rip open and into a few of these this week. I was just looking on the list of the news stories that we have in our back catalogue, Mark. I've got about 30 at the moment. <laughs> so I think we're going to struggle to get through um, six of them here tonight um, during our recording session. So let's get into it. And the first one I'm taking, Mark, and it is one from about a good friend of ours, a very photogenic man, um, Dr. Tristan. Rich um, or Tristan Harris, depending on how he likes to be called. He's a bit of a man of mystery, old Tristan. And he's the vet, the exotics vet at Lord Smith Animal Hospital here in Melbourne, which is, I think, the biggest um, animal hospital in the Southern Hemisphere as far as the number of cases they see. Not uh, not according to the exotics. I'm sure that'll be your clinic there, Mark, but um, as far as the number of exotics in the Southern Hemisphere that are seen per, per day or per week. So Tristan saw he he managed to score. He's very, he likes to get his mug in the um, in the news, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, even though it's covered with a mask in this particular um, story, there. Lot Smith helps cure misery for rare baby macaw. Now I'm going to be punchy, Mark. I said I would be punchy. Um, Dr. Tristan restored a baby macaw to good health. So the bird had been referred to him. It had been seen by another vet clinic and then taken to the Lord Smith. And it, and it was presented to him with lethargy, vomiting and for weight loss. And he took a radiograph and he was surprised. He saw a tube-like foreign body and he scoped it, Mark, and he pulled out a feeding tube. So I thought the interesting comment that um, Tristan said, he sort of covered his bets here. Um, Once we removed it, we could see that it was a feeding tube. The current carers had not had her long and they were not missing any feeding tubes. So I suspect the tube had been swallowed while still at the breeders. 
Well, I think he's been very diplomatic there. Um, <laughs> what about the vets who had, had seen the boy beforehand, Mark? Maybe, maybe it was, you know, from that vet clinic. Don't want, to, think- don't want to get your referral base into to, into um, into trouble. I better check that it's not my clinic that um, sent <laughs> them out in there, Mark. Um, what do you I'm think actually, about that one? I've got three things to say about that. The first one, and I'm trying to be punchy here, the first one is that, crikeys, I would have been so happy to see that in that radiograph. We've had a few macaws lately who have been not doing well, they've been sick and we've taken radiographs and they have gigantic proventriculus and they end up uh, turn, returning a positive uh, bornavirus result and um, and it doesn't go well for the bird. So to find this cause, that would have made him very, very happy. And the second thing is that it is very easy. I know I've done it um, to lose a feeding tube into a macaw. I was very fortunate that um, the macaw in question ripped off the uh, crop needle, got it into its crop, the appropriate location for a crop needle, and I was able to hold it in the crop um, until such time as I could anaesthetize the bird and get it out. So I didn't have to scope into the bird's stomach. So that was good. But I, I emphasize how easy it is to lose something. Um, they're very, very strong beaks are uh, uh, able to just lever those pop those things off the syringe and down they go and um, crackies your heart jumps up into your mouth when it happens and um, into your, from your crop into from your, your mouth. crop for yes and um, and what was the last thing I was going to say Third. was um, I just wanted to reiterate. Uh, Breeders should not. It is very, um, I just want to reiterate this quote from Tristan. It is very inappropriate for breeders to sell unweaned birds. We don't recommend buying unweaned birds. I mean, he has a proviso, but I think um, the stress on the bird, even when you're very experienced at rearing them, is a bad thing. Birds should be weaned by the people that take them from their parents and only passed on to new owners once they're established. Yes. And he's a seasoned veteran, isn't he, Mark, with the media? He knows oh, how to spin a story and tell, tell some news. He's a yes. media tart, that Tristan. <laughs> Good story, Mark. That's mine. Um, what's your first one? My first one is the story the re- of the rediscovery of the black-browed babbler. Um, so- and this is a bird, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone knows that a babbler is a bird, Brendan. We've had this discussion. <laughs> Uh, the black-browed babbler was uh, um, discovered in the uh, about 1840. A single specimen was collected and went into the museum, and that's the last time anyone saw them. But um, some uh, people, uh, Mohammed Saranto and Mohammed Rizke Fauzun, trekked into South Kalimantan rainforest in Borneo um, and they could see these birds um, and so they trapped one um, they took photographs of it and released it and then circulated it on bird watching sites um, where after several you know sent this after the photos were sent to several experts it was identified after the initial shock faded that it was indeed the black-browed babbler, which is the longest lost species in Asia. It hadn't been recorded even in over 170 years. Um, so, yes, 
um, it's just a great story to point out that even when things, um, particularly in Indonesia where, you know, uh, bird, a, a bird species hotspot, the rainforests and whatnot in that part of the world, um, there's a lot of things to be discovered. And even on the islands that uh, Kate and I have visited, we um, spot the um, the little silver eyes uh off the coast of Sulawesi and um, and even some of those islands that we visited, the uh, the Zosterops species have been now um, DNA identified as different from the the main uh, main main individuals on the main island. So there's a lot of new species to find. This is a particularly important one. The equivalent of finding a passenger pigeon or a Carolina parakeet. Um, so pretty special, Brendan. It just blew my mind, says Akbar, um, to Monga Bay's Elizabeth Claire Alberts. We suspect the bird might actually have been around there for quite a long time. And the good news is that they took photos of it and let and it go. And then they released it. Wasn't that a good thing to do instead of taking photos of it? And pickling Pick, it in pickling alcohol. It. Yes, that's right. And saying, look, we found <laughs> a long lost. The species is no longer extinct. Oh, sorry. Yes. yes. Good story, Mark. It is a good news story. I've got a, a um, well, it's a it's an interesting story, this one. Bees revealed as Australia's most dangerous venomous creature, Mark. And for those listeners who do not live in Australia and haven't visited Australia, you know, all the all the stories about Australia being the home to the world's deadliest creatures and venomous plants and animals and things. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's all Basically, true. It's all true. But they, in 2018, um, it's talking about um, a particular – well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go way back, Mark. Way back. Way back to a report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare found of 3,520 hospitalisations following contact with venomous animals and plants in 2017-18, more than a quarter related to bee stings, Mark, a quarter. Jeez. A quarter. My take-home message with this story, Mark, is that little talk about immunotherapy and the lack of um, take-up of it for bee sting allergies. Did you read that little yeah. bit, bit further I, down I was, the article? That was the, the, the bit of a... Um, Bit of a surprise. surprise. Yeah, despite immunotherapy for bee sting allergies being available for about four decades, Canberra Clinical Immunology and Allergy Specialist Dr. Raymond Mullins, who co-authored the study, said too few receive appropriate treatment. So it's very so, much like um, uh, the allergen-specific immunotherapy we do for dogs that have atopy where um, yes. small amounts of allergen are introduced to the body over a period of time, reducing the body's um, exaggerated response when they are exposed natively. Um, so it is a little bit of a surprise given that it is such a, well, I suppose it's, it's the most common life-threatening envenomation, you think. And lots of the people who die from it would be aware that they were at risk. You would think that they um they would be searching go out for the, the immunotherapy. Yeah. Yes, and the only other quick comment I'd like to make is the um, that 
Dr. Mullins said it was possible the rate of death from bee sting allergy was underreported in Australia, as most occur in middle-aged men who have other conditions such as heart disease. It's almost always someone in rural, remote areas. Their EpiPen was left in the car and they had run to the... I reckon they were just being stupid middle-aged men and and, and getting drunk and um, running around in the, in the outback and getting stung, Mark. It would, it would hardly be a surprise, Brendan, and makes me a bit nervous about, um, as you well know, uh, Kate and I have a few <laughs> adventures planned, and as yes. it happens, I'm a middle-aged man prone to doing stupid things. Behave yourself, Mark. You need to be very careful when you're out there because there's lots of venomous creatures out there. Which is an excellent segue to my next story um, because uh, um, I've, uh, I've been – um, inundated with TikToks about um, poisonous, venomous, um, the differences between and variations amongst. And this next one is a little bit of a strange one because it's a story about rats that have, uh, well, the headline says poisonous hairdo. Um, but essentially what these rats do is they um, chew the bark of the um, East Africa's arrow poison tree and the bark um, contains highly um, dangerous toxins, which mix to the saliva, and then the rats lick themselves. Um, uh, the toxic drool they produce gets uh, mixed up with their fur um, and provides them with a weaponized hairdo. Um, and they um, they behave like they're uh, they're poisonous. They don't uh, dash away when they uh, when a potential predator comes along. They just sort of um, stick all their black and white hairs up and trundle off like they're saying you can't do anything to me. They often stand their ground. Um, so it it's definitely the case that they know that they're toxic. Um, Brendan. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a, a strange one because they're they're um they 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 don't taste very nice and they make any predators sick, but it's not their own poison. They're acquiring it from a tree they chew on. Um, so a little bit of a strange one. Yes, they're quite um, striking looking animals. These aren't they? These crested rats and quite oh, large too. They they're crested yes. rats, but um, you know they weigh between two and three kilos. So, um, you know, sort of more rabbit-sized rats, black and white rabbit-sized rats with poisonous hair. So hardly a surprise <laughs> they stand out. Yes. And speaking of weaponized hairdos, I've seen you with, with um, that many, many times, Mark. It's, um, it's a scary sight. It's a scary <laughs> sight. Um, well, my next news story, Mark, I have no segue into this one. It's I've found this quite an interesting one as well it's about an orangutan named karen who's the first in the world to get a covid19 vaccine mark and interestingly enough karen was the first orangutan to have open heart surgery in 1994 so um 
Well, she survived the heart <laughs> surgery. Let's see if she survives her COVID-19 vaccine, but she has. The interesting thing I find about this market, it's um, three other orangutans and five bonobos at San Diego Zoo have received two doses each of an experimental vaccine for animals developed by a veterinary pharmaceutical company, Mark. So it's a COVID-19 vaccine developed specifically from the veterinary um, pharmaceutical industry for animals. So um, that's my take-home message on this one. It's quite interesting there. But with very, very limited studies, Mark, I think they've just decided to jab a few um, (laughs) animals. Um, And they're planning on expanding the vaccine um, to uh, all the other other, um, gorillas and and, um, also... Big cats as well, I think, um, in in the zoo there. But so far, um, they have had um, no reactions, and they're according to the article, they're weighing out the risks versus the potential benefits from it. Um, and I think some of the challenges of it too that they do mention about um, looking at you know following up with blood tests, etc. But I don't know whether they how often they're managing to do that um, because flicking through that article, I couldn't see where they were looking at anti. Um, um, in teeter levels and that. Um, I don't know whether I've missed it in that article, whether you saw that, Mark, but um, it's an interesting process there. And I suppose, um, yeah, did they have to go through many ethics committees for, for this and what sort of approval did they get or did they not get for it? But um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, it's a couple and it's of because, questions. Go on. It's because, because they... Well, and the reason why they're having it, doing it there, obviously, is because um, in January the troop of eight gorillas at San Diego Zoo Park became the first great apes in the world to test positive for the coronavirus, Mark. Um, and um, I think most of them survived from it. But um, yeah, so sorry, you were going to say. Well, it, it um, there's two questions. The first one um, I would ask is that it. Um, Dr. Kumar says that the experimental vaccine works similarly to the Novavax vaccine for humans, um, which doesn't use the live virus but uses mRNA to create synthetic spike proteins in the body to trigger the same antibodies. Um, So I assume that it's the same technology that's used in the human vaccine. Um, So I assume that it would be very similar vaccine all round. I don't know that it'd be that much different. Um, but then I wonder, like, geez, I wouldn't want to be the person deciding who, like, it's bad enough that some people get vaccinated before some other people. Um, geez. You the, do want to be Karen or you don't want to be the, Karen? That the, the, the um, great apes get vaccinated before some people. I, it's all very... I don't know. I don't know what to say, Brendan. It's a tricky one. And by the look of it, it's a, it's a, it's the vaccine that was developed by um, Zoetis. Yeah. Um, yeah, because they were developing the COVID-19 vaccine for dogs and cats. And do you know whether or not that's gone any further with actual trials or, or has it been um, released limitedly anywhere no, in the world, Mark? I just... Um I don't think it has been released anywhere, but I do think the um, the research is ongoing. I still think that they're expecting to um, 
to uh, consider releasing it. Although there have, while there's been some dogs and cats who have shown that they can carry it, it hasn't been an easy thing to get those animals to, you know, lot not large numbers of them are getting it um, from the people that they're with. Um, so EDIS data shows that the cats and dogs in their trials all had significant immune response to the vaccine. Yeah, yes. I don't know so where it's your, up to. So what? It, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So what's your thought about if that was released next month, the COVID-19 vaccine for dogs and cats, Mark, would you be stocking it and recommending it to your clients' pets? Well, I'd, I'd, all, I'd, I'd always be guided by the science, but my gut feeling is that it's – a, not a huge health issue for the those animals, and B, certainly doesn't seem to be a major, like, vector situation. I don't think those animals are um, uh, transmitting it to humans. So I probably would not be stocking it straight off the bat. I think there probably are other things that um, people could be spending their money on to keep their animals healthy. Yes, Buying a cock-a-doodle-doo for $10,000. <laughs> so so what's, your, what's your next and last news story, Mark? Oh, this one I love, Brendan. Um, as you know, I'm a great nudibranch fan. I love those underwater mollusks, the colourful slug-like creatures. Um, and this story is about one of their close relatives, the uh, one of the um, sea slugs, um, Scientists in Tokyo noticed that some of their uh, sea slugs, Japanese sea slugs, which are um, they're not, they're not, they're small and cute and weird, but they're not horribly small. They're about um, ten to fifteen centimeters long. Anyway, some of the ones that they had for other research projects um, did some strange things. They noticed that um, one of the Elysia marginata sea slugs. Um, dumped its body. It literally separated it separated its body from its head um, in what is probably the most extreme example of um, autotomy in the um, in the natural world. Um, we obviously know that there are you know our our lizards, um, many of our lizards, geckos and skinks, can re uh, can choose to let their tail go and and regenerate a new tail. Um, uh, axolotls are famous for growing new limbs if they happen to lose one. Um, but but uh, many scientists thought it was impossible for animals, even as simple as sea slugs, to survive without. Um, for their head to survive without a, um, you know, a heart pumping blood around and keeping the the neurons of the head um, adequately oxygenated, um, but um, after they observed the slugs do this themselves, as you do if you're a Japanese scientist, they chopped a few heads off um, to see what would happen. They uh, uh, Yochi Yusa tried it. The um, aquatic ecology professor tried it not on themselves, but they tried <laughs> cutting the heads off 16 I sea slugs. I wonder how the ethics approval for that went, Mark. We want to cut the heads off 16 sea slugs. 
Six of the creatures did start regeneration, and three of them succeeded in completely replacing the body that they had been separated from and survived. One of the th- those three even lost and regrew its body twice. Um, so uh, it's now known that two different species of Japanese sea slugs uh, can do this regeneration trick. Um, so, yeah, it's a... Um, I don't know whether this is a universal thing. These sea slugs are a little bit strange in that they uh, hang on to some of the chloroplasts, the the um, photosensitive, the photosensitive, uh, photosynthetic um, organelles of the plants they eat. Um, that's why they have this pale greenish colour, um, and so maybe the the photosynthetic chlorophyll that they maintain in their body allows them to survive without a um a heart for a period of time until they can grow a new one um so i don't know whether other species that don't have the the um zooxanthellae the the um the uh, algae that um can survive in their tissue the- well you're spot on there mark aren't you because if you read further down in the article um that it mentioned that after the decapitation, the head acts sort of like a plant. Ah. It turns a shade of green and gets its energy from oxygen and sunlight. So you're exactly right there, Mark. So um, I don't know what I, I think. I, I, I've, and look, I'm sure these researchers have it in their minds to um, to get a few syringes of chlorophyll and inject it into human heads, maybe separate them from the bodies and see if they can regenerate human bodies in the distant future so if we're ever out somewhere mark and i see you being decapitated and your head's turning green i'll say you'll be right mark <laughs> just just say you'll just be right. regrow regrow <laughs> your body regrow your body you'll be right yes that is bizarre isn't it and i have some photos in that article of decapitated <laughs> sea slugs there and um yeah i'd like to see the um i'd like to see the ethics approval for that um but um, it was pretty amazing. Yes, are they eaten as a food item in anywhere in the world? Knowledge. I know what you're like, though. If, you, if they were, you'd give it a go. I no, I wouldn't. No one, you know me. I'm I'm ninety percent vegetarian these days. I'm ninety five percent. But that's the beauty of these sea slugs that they're you know. Yes, plants. They they're, full, they're full of plant. They're packed full of plants. <laughs> Well, I think we should sign off here, Mark. It's been a bit of a slightly shorter episode than usual and a little bit unusual in many ways, this one, but we needed to catch up on a few a few news stories. Um, we've still got many to catch up on. And um, if you uh, enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already and go to vetgurus.com and that's the place to go to to see all the previous podcasts, all 182 others. And I'm about to click on Mr. Outro Man, and we will see you all next week. Guru from the Gurus. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.